This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. The purpose of this video is to provide general information and education about the care of a critically ill child. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision-making and judgment by a qualified healthcare professional. The information contained in this video should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Therapies When Conventional Ventilation Fails by Dr. John Arnold Please note that in this video we will be following the guidelines used at Boston Children's Hospital. Some of this information may need to be modified based on the equipment, guidelines, and practices in place in your institution. Hello, we're going to take a journey and on this journey we're going to visit three therapeutic modes that are often considered when conventional mechanical ventilation fails. Uh, we're going to talk about prone positioning, high-frequency techniques, and we'll close with a discussion of exogenous surfactant. We're going to review clinical trial uh, results. We're going to re review data from the animal lab. And at the end, I'm going to try to share, at the end of each section, I'm going to try to share with you my perspective uh, uh, about these therapies. Prone positioning. Well, we know that uh, turning patients into the prone position improves oxygenation in 50 to 75% of uh, patients so treated. We also know that early intervention is associated with an increased response rate. And we also have recently learned that this effect is mediated not by changes in perfusion, but rather by redistribution of ventilation. This is probably the best known clinical trial examining the effectiveness of uh, prone positioning in adults with acute lung injury. Uh, this is the Kaplan-Meier from that paper showing no significant difference in mortality between those patients managed in the supine position versus those managed in the prone position. This trial was not without its flaws, and a subsequent study, uh, first presented as an abstract at the American Thoracic Society meetings, uh, showed some interesting and slightly different results. This was a Spanish trial, which was powered to demonstrate uh, a 40% relative mortality reduction. Now, unlike Atnoni's study, uh, these investigators sought to increase the dose of prone positioning. So you were managed with 20 hours of prone positioning per day. They enrolled 133 patients over 45 months, uh, and there was a remarkable difference in mortality, although this difference did not achieve statistical significance. And at the terminal phases of the study, with enrollment decreasing due to competition from other clinical trials, the study was closed. So this is the Kaplan-Meier from this Spanish trial and tantalizingly demonstrates some separation in mortality between those patients managed in the prone position versus those managed in the supine position. But as mentioned, these data did not reach statistical significance. And finally, a pediatric study, uh, which was uh, coordinated by a colleague of mine in Boston, 
This is the first pediatric trial examining the effectiveness of the prone position. Uh, this was a very tightly controlled uh, study with protocols uh, uh, designed to determine all forms of care that could affect the primary outcome. Uh, so a low tidal volume strategy was uh, uh, adopted from the ARDS network trial. Uh, permissive hypercapnia was used in both arms of the study. There was a PEEP FIO2 grid uh, that uh, mandated progressive increases in PEEP with uh, uh, increases in FIO2. There was a mandatory transition to high-frequency oscillation if patients uh, met uh, certain uh, predefined criteria. Sedation was protocolized. There was a daily wake-up test performed. An extubation readiness was, test was performed uh, prior to uh, extubation. And then there were numerous guidelines for hemodynamic uh, management, nutrition, and skin care. There were no significant differences in the baseline demographic factors at enrollment. And importantly, uh, there was no difference in PRISM-3 score. Uh, and please note that these patients were primarily suffering from ARDS with uh, almost 100% of patients uh, manifesting a PO2 to FIO2 ratio less than 200. So this is what happened to their PO2 FIO2 ratio uh, over the first week on study. You can probably guess that the spiked uh, line, uh, the solid uh, squares, uh, reflect the patients managed with the prone position. Uh, and every morning when turned uh, uh, back to the prone position, there was a dramatic increase in PO2-FIO2 ratio, reflecting improved oxygenating efficiency. And importantly, 90% of the patients uh, treated with the prone position were categorized as responders. The primary outcome variable in this study was ventilator-free days, a multivariate analysis which controlled for age, the uh, admission PRISM-3, uh, the direct versus indirect uh, uh, form of lung injury, uh, and the mode of ventilation and enrollment uh, uh, was performed. Uh, and there was no significant difference in the primary outcome, which was ventilator-free days. This is a list of some of the secondary outcomes that were also included in the data analysis. Uh, note that there was no significant difference in mortality, days to recovery of lung injury, or the number of organ failure-free days. So this was a negative trial. Having said that, this was the first uh, pediatric trial. I'm not ready to give up completely on the prone position. We do know that prone positioning does improve oxygenating efficiency. Uh, we know that in the pediatric population, the complications are minimal. Uh, the incidence of skin breakdown in our study was very small. Uh, and an unpublished post hoc analysis of this trial and others shows that there is a trend towards improved mortality in those patients who are less severely ill. And my synthesis of this is that patients with the most uh, degree of recoverable lung are, in fact, most likely to benefit from early intervention with a prone position. I do think that patients should be managed with a prone position only uh, as a desperate maneuver uh, or as part of an ongoing uh, clinical trial. High-frequency oscillatory ventilation. This is a short list of uh, measures that we take every day in the intensive care unit to min minimize ventilator-induced lung injury. We maximize the lung recruitment, we prevent end expiratory collapse, we minimize cyclic stretch, and importantly, we try to avoid end inspiratory over distension. Now, I'm gonna to try to convince you that the best way to achieve uh, these aims is with use of high-frequency oscillatory ventilation. 
I will not try to convince you that it's impossible to use a conventional ventilator to achieve these, these aims, but I think it's simply easier to achieve these aims with an oscillator. These are some data from our animal laboratory demonstrating an important fact. These are peak to trough uh, pressure tracings uh, measured at the proximal airway, uh, here uh, in the mid-trachea, just distal to the endotracheal tube, and finally uh, at the alveolus. We opened the chest of these animals and placed a capsule over the visceral pleural surface. And note the tremendous uh, filtering effect uh, as we move down uh, the trachea and into the alveoli. There's a significant decrease in the peak to trough pressure amplitude when we move from the proximal airway down to the alveolus. The first step, step off in amplitude is created by the filtering effect of the endotracheal tube. The second step off is created by the branching generations of the tracheobronchial tree. So, despite the fact that during high-frequency oscillatory ventilation, you can actually measure quite high uh, peak to trough pressure changes proximally, we now know that in the alveolus, these pressure changes are minimal. This does not happen during conventional mechanical ventilation. This is the same animal managed with conventional ventilation, and the peak to trough pressure change is transmitted with uh, significant fidelity as we move from the trachea to the alveolus. Uh, there's exactly one uh, clinical trial of high-frequency oscillatory ventilation in pediatric patients. Uh, uh, the uh, uh, strategy in the high-frequency group was to aggressively open the lung, and this is the mean airway pressure plotted over the first 72 hours on study. You can probably guess that the open circles are those patients managed with high-frequency oscillatory ventilation. So at enrollment, we move from a mean airway pressure of roughly 21 centimeters of water up to 26, 27 centimeters of water by hour eight of study. So this is aggressive volume recruitment using high-frequency oscillatory ventilation. Uh, there was no significant difference in ventilator days. Uh, there was no significant difference in the incidence of new air leak. Uh, there was no significant difference in survival. However, the number requiring oxygen at 30 days, which was our definition of barotrauma, was significantly reduced in those patients managed with high-frequency oscillatory ventilation. Now, how do we use an oscillator? And I think these pictures are going to help you imagine uh, 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 the way to effectively employ high-frequency oscillatory ventilation. This is a cartoon of a pressure volume curve. And remember that we begin to inflate the lung, and even the normal lung will demonstrate a significant increase uh, in pressure without much of a change in volume until we reach the critical opening pressure of the lung. This is so the so-called lower inflection point. We then reach the compliant portion of the pressure volume curve. We inflate the lung all the way to total lung capacity, and then we begin the deflation portion of the pressure volume curve. And notice that there's a difference between the deflation limb and the inflation limb of the pressure volume curve. This is the phenomenon of hysteresis. It's produced by surfactant and the elastic recoil of the chest. And even in our sickest patients, there is demonstrable hysteresis. And we need to take advantage of this when we use high-frequency oscillatory ventilation. Now, I'm going to show you an actual pressure volume curve generated by an isolated set of sheep lungs. So here we are at zero centimeters inflating pressure. And this represents the isolated lung preparation. And you'll note that there's not much aerated lung. This does not look like a healthy uh, gas-exchanging organ. Now we're going to slowly increase the airway pressure to four centimeters eight centimeters, and notice at the bottom of this slide uh, are the corresponding pressure volume points generated by this uh, pressure volume maneuver. Now it's not until we get to 12 centimeters of water 
that the lung begins to open and we see healthy gas exchanging regions of lung appear. And here's a lung at 16 centimeters of water. The lung now looks open and it looks like uh, a healthy lung. This is total lung capacity defined in this experiment as 20 centimeters of water. Now importantly, watch what happens to the lung as we march down the deflation limb of the pressure volume curve. This is 16 centimeters of water, 12 centimeters of water, 8 centimeters of water, 4 centimeters of water. So once we recruit the lung, we can significantly decrease distending pressure and not experience alveolar collapse. So this is the importance of lung volume recruitment. In particular, when we initiate high-frequency oscillatory ventilation, it's important to open the lung with aggressive increases in mean airway pressure. So, my view is that high-frequency ventilation adds a margin of safety. The expiratory limb can be rapidly identified using oxygenating efficiency. Recruitment can be applied to a maximal number of alveolar units. In general, we're delivering tidal volumes close to the measured dead space of the patient, which is in the 1.5 to 2 ml per kilo range. And as I've shown you, I think from our animal lab, and these data have been uh, substantiated by other laboratories, the alveolar pressure and presumably volume changes are minimized. Now, if you've been thinking about using high-frequency oscillatory ventilation, you've probably also uh, been hearing about airway pressure release ventilation. And I can't resist a brief comment on APRV. Think of APRV as CPAP with release. The theoretical advantages of APRV include the ability to apply high mean airway pressures while preserving spontaneous breathing, uh, and in addition, a decrease in sedation requirements, minimal use of muscle relaxants as patients are breathing spontaneously, in theory, alveolar derecruitment is minimized, and there's compelling data now from humans that cardiovascular performance is greatly enhanced during APRV. Now, this is a picture of the airway pressure versus time plot of a patient being managed with uh, APRV. And as you know, uh, we talk about two pressures, the P high and P low. We talk about two times the T high and T low. So these are pressure at the high setting and the time that you're at P high, that's P high and T high. And then pressure low is generally set to zero and T low is generally kept uh, less than one second. So, I am not sure that APRV is the answer, and I'm going to share with you why uh, I'm a little bit worried about APRV. We know that alveoli that have been recruited have an increased propensity to collapse after recruitment. Recruitment, therefore, can actually make alveoli more unstable than they were prior to recruitment. And some compelling data comes from our uh, friend in Syracuse, Dr. Gary Neiman, whose model is an interesting one. Uh, he uses pigs, he uses tween detergent, a laboratory detergent, to induce surfactant deficiency. He then performs a limited thoracotomy. He attaches a microscope to the visceral pleural surface of the lung, and then using a video recorder, he, recorder, he uh, analyzes uh, computerized images, uh, and the important derived variable from these studies are the change in alveolar area. And his, the critical value is the inspiratory to expiratory difference in area. So the IDE delta is his derived variable that describes the amount of area change that occurs during the ventilatory cycle. Uh, and these are some of the images from his laboratory. He has uh, hardworking graduate students outlining the alveolus. This is an inspiration 
This is end expiration. And he calculates the difference in area using a, a computerized system uh, at the end of inspiration uh, versus the end of expiration. Now, some interesting recent data regarding what the lung looks like during high-frequency oscillatory ventilation versus APRV. So on the right is an animal in uh, Gary's laboratory being managed with high frequency. Now, doesn't that look wonderful? Minimal changes in pressure uh, and area uh, uh, as the animal's oscillated. On the left, you're going to see the same animal managed with APRV. And what you're going to see, as you can probably imagine, is significant changes in the difference between end inspiratory and end expiratory area. So, inspiration, there's the release. Inspiration, there's the release. There's a large, potentially, uh, moment of derecruitment during expiration uh, during APRV. And this is what has me worried. So, we know uh, that in the past, strategies that have been designed to improve oxygenation may not adequately provide lung protection. And our anecdotal experience in Boston is that APRV dramatically improves oxygenation, dramatically improves patient comfort, but I'm worried that we're not optimizing lung protection. So I think before we uh, think of APRV as simply high frequency with spontaneous ventilation, we need to wait for clinical trial results, uh, several of which are underway at the moment. Surfactant. Okay. I think we should also discuss surfactant. I don't think we know all the answers regarding uh, effective use of surfactant in acute lung injury in ARDS. Uh, I think we're still left with questions about what is the proper surfactant preparation, what's the best mode of administration, what's the optimal number of doses, and what are the appropriate outcome variables to determine whether surfactant is efficacious or not. Now, some of these questions will be answered in the uh, a subsequent series of slides, but I think several of these questions remain open at the moment. Doug Wilson has done the most work uh, with the use of exogenous surfactant in pediatric patients, as you know. This is his most recent paper, uh, published uh, a couple years ago uh, in the Journal of the American Medical Association. This was a phase three uh, study. 21 centers participated. There are 152 patients total enrolled over a three-year uh, study period. You needed to be greater than one week and less than 21 years to be eligible. Uh, the typical definitions of respiratory failure were used. And importantly, enrollment had to occur within 24 hours of the initiation of mechanical ventilation. Now, this is very important if one is to generalize these results to clinical practice. Surfactant was administered to these patients within 24 hours of intubation. And then finally, the oxygenation index had to be seven or greater to be eligible for participation. Now, the treatment regimen had been developed in prior phase two dose ranging studies. So 80 mLs per meter squared of calfactant were administered over uh, 10 to 15 minutes in four equal aliquots using rotating positions. And you could be retreated once if your OI remained greater than seven at 12 hours. So two dose, doses were the maximum. The primary outcome variable in this study was ventilator-free days. And unfortunately, there was no significant difference in those patients treated with, with surfactant versus those treated uh, with uh, 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 sham installation of air. Uh, this is the proportion of patients extubated successfully. And although there's a trend towards 
a higher frequency of extubation in those patients managed with surfactant, this trend was not statistically significant. These are some of the other variables that were uh, examined uh, in this trial. So there was a significant difference in mortality. Uh, there was a significant difference in those patients who died on the ventilator. And there was a significant difference in the number of patients who failed conventional mechanical ventilation and who had to go on to be treated with either high-frequency inhaled nitric oxide or ECMO. All these differences favored surfactant. So this is potentially a very powerful study. For the first time in a pediatric population, we are finding differences that an intervention creates in mortality. But I think a closer look at this study is warranted. This is the bivariate analysis. And in the placebo column or row, you simply see the effect of surfactant. So the odds ratio for uh, survival is up to 2.3 in those patients treated with surfactant. This difference, as you just saw, was statistically significant. Now, importantly, if you looked at the presence of immunocompromise, this also had a significant influence on mortality. The odds ratio for dying, if you had an immunocompromised diagnosis, was 8.4. And this is where, where a closer second look is important. In the multivariate analysis, where combinations of variables are examined, you will see that the difference created by the use of surfactant uh, does not reach statistical significance, which means that there was unbalanced randomization of patients with immunocompromise into the control group, creating an artificially high mortality in the patients in the control group. So the 95% confidence interval uh, in the multivariate analysis includes one. These results are not statistically significant. So my concerns about this study are that the multivariate analysis altered the primary analysis. That's an important message. I think we do need further clinical trial data, and Doug Wilson, in fact, at the moment, is organizing a second large phase three study. Including immunocompromised patients in any trial examining acute lung injury is problematic. It certainly increases enrollment rate, but as we all know, these patients are very difficult to treat, may have a disease that's completely different than uh, acute lung injury and ARDS, and I think at least those patients should be stratified during any subsequent data analysis. Now, in an interesting post hoc analysis, uh, uh, Doug did show that those patients with direct lung injury uh, had a much better outcome than those with indirect lung injury. Conclusion. So, looking into the future, I think what we've learned about these uh, non-conventional therapies is that early intervention is very important. I think we need to creatively use surrogate variables. I think using mortality is going to doom clinical trials to failure. We need to come up with creative indices of organ failure, uh, 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 time to extubation, ventilator-free days, uh, so we don't unnecessarily abandon potentially helpful therapies. And finally, I think what is really going to benefit patients is the combination of these therapies into packages. So high frequency, I think, is an important uh, player in uh, providing lung protection. We haven't talked at all about partial liquid ventilation or total liquid ventilation. I think that potentially can have a significant impact in enhancing lung protection. And I think combining, combining these therapies potentially with the use of the prone position may, in fact, create uh, significant differences in patient outcomes. 
Well, let me close with a quote, one of my favorite quotes, which is, I have yet to see a problem, however complicated, that when you look at it the right way, does not become more complicated. That concludes our video on therapies when conventional ventilation fails. Thank you. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.